0: Hey, I'm Aika Spencer, and I love fandom. I love the writing, some of which I create, the art, none of which I create, and the many aspects that make it up. With the pandemic in full swing, I decided the best way not to go crazy was to start a podcast around it. This one, Down the Fandom Hole, Conversations With. So putting on my big girl bra, I took a chance and reached out to other fandom creators, asking if they would like to share their voice and experiences around it. Amazingly, most of them have said yes. So taking a moment, we sit down and chat about topics like creativity, taking risks, self-care, and many more. I am humbled that I got to chat with all of these brilliant and interesting creators from around the world. And it has only cemented my belief that fandom can also be a bridge and common ground to inclusivity. We are all valid, and fandom helps us envision worlds in which we are. God! Isn't fandom fucking amazing? Anyway, to keep me from rambling on, let's get this show started. Hey guys, so this episode is a push outside my Super Corp, Super Rojas Corp comfort zone. When down the fandom hole got its new name, I knew I wanted to engage with fanwork creators from a variety of other fandoms and create a safe space where shippers of all orientations could come and have a com- fun conversation about something that they, like me, enjoyed. To sit down and chat about what inspires them and whatever else they want to talk about and share. Which is why, after taking a breath and a recommendation from Aspidides, I asked Ray D. Magden to chat with me on my show. Thankfully, even with my low knowledge of her work, she agreed. And after a brainstorming pre-chat, we got to know each other and came up with ideas on what to share. And so, on today's episode, Brady Magden and I talk about what it's like being a published author, why she still writes for fandom, and her experience being close to the transgender community. Thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Hi, it's so great to be here. I had a lot of fun in our pre-chat, and I know we're going to have a lot of fun doing this podcast.
0: I think so, too. And if not, that's what the edit feature's for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward so to we- it. Oh, Thank you. So before we begin, what are your pronouns? She, her. She, her. Okay, I'll be sure to remember that. Next, while we were having our pre-chat, you spoke a lot about being an ambassador for the gender fluid community. Do you want to share that story with us today? Yeah,
1: definitely. So I realized that I was not straight at a very young age, uh, probably about five. I wanted to... (laughs) I thought Princess Jasmine in the movie Aladdin was very pretty, and I I thought that was normal. <laughs> but uh, I grew up and I identified as a lesbian, and that was not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I faced a lot of hardships, a lot of difficulty within my own family. But uh, through it all, I had my partner who I met when I was 10. We were friends, and we started dating when I was 14, so we were together from childhood pretty much. And then my partner came out as trans transitioning from assigned female at birth to male. So he's now my husband. Uh, I struggled with that at first because I identified it as a lesbian. I hadn't been attracted to any men. Uh, I'm still not really attracted to any men aside from him. Uh, But I changed my label to queer or bisexual and it, Took uh, some adjustment, but we're we're very happy. We've been married five years. Uh, we've been together for over fifteen years now, and uh, <laughs> every day is just so wonderful. I just love him more and more. Because my partner came out as trans, I had to learn about the trans community and the gender nonconforming community, and the gender mm-hmm. queer community, and basically. What genderqueer is, anybody who does not fit in the neat little box that society, Western society says is a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. So genderqueer is like a big umbrella for anyone who doesn't really fit that narrative. You could be a butch lesbian who identifies as a woman, but wears very masculine clothes and presents in a more masculine way. Uh, You could be someone who doesn't identify as a man or a woman and you could vary based on the day. You could dress very hyper feminine one day and very masculine another day and a mix of the two. You could mix and match. It's like a whole gender buffet. And that one is called gender fluid because you're moving back and forth between presentations based on how you feel. You know, there are all all kinds of different ways to be non-binary. Some people are agender, which means that they don't identify with any gender and they see themselves outside of gender. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. There's
1: uh, trans people who can be either non-binary trans, which means whatever they want it to mean, or binary trans like my husband, which means you are assigned one gender at birth by the doctor, but you identify completely as the other gender in the binary later in life. So I think that this community is beautiful and wonderful, and it makes me very sad that lots of other people in the LGB part of the community don't really pay them much uh, heed and don't listen when they wanna talk about their issues. So because I'm married to a trans person and my two best friends are uh, genderqueer, I really feel it's important to go into any, any space I'm in and make sure that it's a place where they would have a good time too.
0: How do you deal with people who are a little bit more unwilling to be understanding and open-minded?
1: Well, that depends. If they're just full of hate, then I don't want to be around them. If they are just new to the idea and a little bit unsure, like they have questions but they're afraid to ask... I think that's okay. I mean, we all had to learn about trans people because it's not something that's usually taught to us. You certainly don't have a transgender ed day in school. (laughs) So uh,
0: no, that would be so helpful. Or even just
1: a gender ed day talking about gender expectations. You don't have that in school or anywhere. Um, Our parents don't really talk to us about it either. So I love when people come to me with questions because, as a cisgender person, which means I identify with the gender that I was assigned at birth. So, the doctor said I was a woman when I came out, and I still think that I am. Lots of people listening to this will probably go, Oh, yep, that's me. I'm cisgender. I, I, I love answering the questions so that they don't have to and they can just go about their lives and be comfortable. And no one is obligated to educate, but I think it's wonderful when people who have the energy and the platform decide that they would like to educate because everyone has to learn. And if you don't know yet, Mm -hmm. it's not your fault. You just haven't been had a conversation yet.
0: As a queer person myself, who's still learning to deal with my sexuality, it makes me feel like I should know this stuff already being part of the community, but I don't, you know, I'm like, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, and being able to talk to people like you who are willing to allow me my maybe stupid questions, it makes me feel a little bit more secure also in my sexual orientation because like, I believe that there's space for everyone in this world and it doesn't matter what you, what you identify with as either your gender or your sexuality because they aren't necessarily the same thing. You know, if they were, everything would be very black and white and would probably be much easier. But, you know, if people would just be accepting of the differences, that would be much easier (laughs) as well.
1: (laughs) I think the important thing to remember as a queer person learning about the trans community, if you're not already part of that community, is it is totally okay to ask questions and to seek answers. The only thing you have to do is make sure that you have consent from the person that you're asking, because some people like me, and I know a bunch of trans and gender queer people who are my friends who love to answer questions, you just have to make sure you have consent from the person you're talking to, because some trans people, uh, maybe one day they would be happy to answer your questions, but maybe another day they've been misgendered by someone at the store, and they feel kind of crappy, and they don't want to talk about all that very personal gender stuff, so just make sure you have consent before you go asking questions of people. That way, both people are way more likely to have a positive interaction during the conversation.
0: Yes, I can understand how having people just ask you questions would be just frustrating. It's like, I'm here, just accept me. Yeah, well, when
1: Tori – Tori has had top surgery, which means that they took off his breast tissue and reconstructed a more masculine-looking chest. Uh, When he was in surgery, I was in the waiting room, and friends of my mother-in-law and father-in-law who were also there came and started chatting. I found myself suddenly put on the spot uh, answering all these questions about Tori and about trans people, and it was like, my husband's in surgery right now. I don't really want to talk about all this uh so
0: consent is important yes consent makes all the difference what is your most favorite story that you have written so far and you've got a lot so i know that's a big ask oh
1: man um i don't think i can pick a favorite story there's so many um I wrote a series for the game Mass Effect, which, for those of you who don't know, it's a science fiction space opera role playing game, and you can be gay in it, which is lovely. Uh, (laughs) I wrote a series called The Best Entertainment. And that series is not about the main characters, who I also love to write about, but it's about two side characters who don't get much screen time at all. And they're kind of, they started out as kind of a crack ship not many people were writing about them but when i started writing this series uh, everyone else in the fandom was like oh my gosh i love this pairing and they all started writing them too <laughs> so i got to be a bit of a trend setter and Ooh, that's cool that uh experience was really awesome and i made a whole bunch of friends and i got to uh really it was my first very big series so i got to really learn a lot about writing and about fandom and about the community while I was creating the best entertainment series for mass effect. So that, that series always is very near and dear to my heart.
0: Yes. I was able to read the waiting game from that series. And it was funny to read about these characters who I have no knowledge of. And so their story was able to unfurl for me in a way that was like, Oh, so the queen Aria of the, of Omega is very haughty and self-centered. And she's like, I get people to chase me, not the other way around. And she's like, she got, she, she has this, um, what's it called? She's just obsessed with Thea Tevos. Let me know if I said that wrong. And um, Thea, was, Thea is just like, she's basically playing a game to get, aria interested in her so you're like oh this is fun to watch she's like i'm busy and she's like what
1: yeah so the two the two characters uh, are aria talok she is not a human she's an asari which is one of the alien species in mass effect uh they are blue humanoid a monogendered species they consider themselves to be agender but they fill a female role by human standards because they you know have bodies that humans would generally consider female with breasts and a uterus and such and they give birth and so uh they generally use she her pronouns um honestly the game mass effect it's very uh liberal in a lot of ways but i wish that you can tell like Mm -hmm. some of it was made by dudes who just wanted a race of just hot ladies and that's why I like fan fiction, because fan fiction <laughs> uh, allows for more nuance on a monogendered race and what that would be like and how human standards don't always apply in a perfect black and white way to their society. Um but for all intents and purposes, by human standards, they generally fill a more female role. Um, and uh, the two characters are Arya, T- uh, Arya Talok, who is a crime boss. She has her own space station, her own section of the Milky Way that is just hers and her word is law. Okay. So she calls herself Queen Arya. <laughs> she's not an actual queen, but oh. she is. <laughs> and uh But then the other character is the Asari counselor. So basically the highest political leader of this race of uh, blue women with telekinetic powers. And uh, her name is Counselor Tevos. They don't actually give her a first name in the games. I gave her a first name, which is Thea. And uh, lots of other people asked to borrow that name for their Arya Tevos stories. And I said, Sure. So you might see it crop up in other fan fictions as well. Uh, and that's, that's totally fine. I said whoever wanted to can pretend that's her first name. So uh, the only interaction between these two is a, is a phone call uh, in the third game. Because mm-hmm. it's a triple, uh, it's a trilogy. And they're actually re-releasing all of the trilogy with all of the downloadable content as one remastered game in March of this year. So, yes, if anyone really? wants to play Mass Effect and play a space opera where you can be gay and you get some romance on Asari, uh, not one of these two, but uh, Liara Sony, who's another great character, she's a scientist, and it's a very romance-focused game. It's Alien Dating Simulator. If you want to play an Alien Dating Simulator game, you should look into the Mass Effect trilogy coming out, remastered in March of 2021. And uh, anyway, back to Arya and Tevos, they... Uh, only have one phone call in the third game where uh, Arya is asking Tevos for a favor because she has to take refuge on the Citadel. Uh, She has to leave her space station and take refuge Mm -hmm. on the Citadel, which is uh, the seat of galactic power. It's like the Washington DC if it was a space station of America slash the Milky Way. So um, okay, it's just a phone call where she's uh, bargaining for a favor from the counselor and that two-minute scene... That two-minute cutscene uh, inspired me to write a whole series about what if the two of them were in a secret relationship.
0: Really? That's freaking cool because this story is hilarious. Or not hilarious. Um, it's meant to be interesting. I mean, like,
1: I love writing humor with my sex scenes.
0: Okay, good. <laughs> I just liked how hard um, Chancellor, um, Counselor Tavos was playing hard to get. And she was like doing it in the like the most mundane possible way. And it's just so funny that Queen Aria was getting all worked up over it. And she's like, I can't get her out of my head and I need to have sex with her. And then, you know, in order for them to be able to reach completion, they have to be connected um, telepathically for that to happen. And I'm like, oh my God, that would right? be awesome I and sex. Right, I love writing Mass Tele-
1: sex scenes with Asari characters because, yeah, they have this thing that they do. In addition to having telekinetic powers, like they have uh, this blue light that can shoot projectiles at people or move things, uh, they're called biotics. Uh, in addition to that, they have telepathic powers where they can basically merge minds with other Asari, really? with humans, with any sentient creature. And uh, they, re- they basically share minds and it's uh, really, really cool. It happens in the game quite a bit uh, and all Asari, most Asari can do it. So it's just a common part of their culture. And it's interesting to think about mm-hmm. how that ability would change rules around intimacy between two people. Having to share mm-hmm. part of your mind with someone while you're also sharing your body with them, kind of makes it impossible to be completely impartial during sex. It doesn't let you kind of close yourself off. So I think that's a big mm-hmm. part of the reason why this pairing works uh, because they kind of unwillingly learn more about each other and learn to care about each other because they can't just view it as mm-hmm. a, they can't just view it entirely as a fling when you share part of your mind with someone
0: no it definitely would make it harder even in like a normal interactions between humans if we had to share the intimacy in order to reach completion like you know you couldn't um you couldn't take exactly as well
1: and i think that's that's part of the the fun of this series and these characters and the thing about melding is uh it's not necessarily sexual um people parents do Mm -hmm. it with their children the mental connection uh, people do it to transmit information in the very first game whether you romance her mm-hmm. or not uh the character liara Tassoni, who's also an asari um shares part of Shepard's memories shepherd is the main character she's a human female marine well she can also be male you can choose your gender but i play okay. as female uh liara and Shepard join to share information so it's not necessarily sexual, but to put it in a sexual context is very fun for me.
0: So it's like yeah, a Vulcan it's a lot mind like meld.
1: It's a bit fanservice-y to have okay. a race of all That's female, good. beautiful blue women with uh, uh, mind powers, but uh, I, I love it anyway.
0: <laughs> Does that mean that the recipient of the mind meld also has to be aware of it, or is it something they can do like sneaky? Well, I think usually uh,
1: there's some pretty obvious tells. When the Asari is trying to meld with someone, their eyes go black and the other person is aware of Uh a presence within their mind. But I've developed a little bit of my own ideas around what the meld is like. I created uh, basically Arya in my series is very good at getting into other people's minds. She's very good at Penetrating minds, if you will, Tavos is very good <laughs> at shielding her mind because uh, sectioning off parts of yeah. it to protect. Because she has a whole bunch of like galactic secrets that can't get out. So mm-hmm. every time she melds with someone is kind of a yeah. risk uh, that you know someone could uncover some sort mm-hmm. of important state secret. So she's gone through lots of very intense training to protect her mind. So it's kind of like the question of. Uh, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object?
0: I actually really liked the um the the story itself, so I will be when I have more time reading the rest of it. But it, what I loved the most was the whole mind meld during sex. It's like I think that's I, I think sex is a very intimate kind of action it's not just something i could ever do as like a one night stand so seeing it as something that was part of other another race or even um alien species was like oh, god right? i wish we had that i
1: yeah, there's lots of times that i wish that i'll be honest i would totally be an alien fucker if we if there were other uh, aliens that had made contact with us <laughs>
0: <laughs> it would be so nice it'd be like oh my god and then you guys are compatible to have children and then um you know, the sky's yeah, the limit sorry, as to you're what cool. goes they can, on. Uh,
1: they can have children with any sentient species uh, by mapping their genetic code. Technically, it's, uh, technically, they are only reproducing, the mother is reproducing by herself, but she randomizes her own genetic mm-hmm. code by reading another partner's genetic code. So it's a bit like asexual reproduction, but not quite. (sighs) But this gives the Asari the ability to have Asari children, of course, with any uh, other species.
0: Well, you would need to if you're monogendered, right? If they're only females, how else would you um, have children if you had to rely on other species for it? So I'm going to ask again, I'm going to kind of go back to how it was for you. If that's not a problem from your life experience of having a husband who just decided to transition was it something that was just easy for you to accept or did it take some time for you to go um okay yeah I understand just give me some time to absorb this or were you just like yeah let's do it and you know well at that point
1: in my life I had uh met enough trans and non-binary people to be fine with the concept but to have it happen in my relationship with my partner was a struggle. It took a while for me to be okay with it because uh, I had identified as a lesbian for many years and I loved that label and that community and it felt like the word that best described me. And so it was a grieving process uh, to let go of that lesbian label and to identify as bisexual because I definitely had some internalized biphobia going on. Uh where I thought it was like just being less gay. And it meant that my attractions to women weren't as important, especially since I was now in a relationship with a trans guy. So it was really hard. But uh, as time passed and I decided that the benefits of this relationship with someone I really loved were more important than whether I wanted to change the word that described me or not, I began to see a very wonderful thing which is that my partner uh, my husband became happier and more confident and more open he became very brave and kind and he'd been kind before but he'd always been a little bit quiet and reserved Mm -hmm. and kind of sad and distant and I would get glimpses of how happy he could be But it wasn't until he transitioned that he truly kind of blossomed into the wonderful person that he is today. And he just became a better person. And so that is the reason that it ended up being a positive thing in my life. mm
0: -hmm. Because
1: I got to see this person I loved flourish and grow. And it was, despite the struggle, definitely a beautiful thing in the end.
0: So it allowed him to settle and kind of create better roots
1: yeah he was just a healthier happier more loving and kind person and you know of course when you're in a relationship with someone how they feel about themselves and the world impacts you so it Mm -hmm. made my life a whole lot better to be with this person
0: it is nice when two people who can fully be themselves can come together and create a relationship it definitely i feel makes them stronger as a unit and a good foundation for each other does that make sense
1: absolutely and I want to clarify I don't think everyone whose partner comes out as trans is obligated to stay sometimes Mm -hmm. two people can genuinely love each other but they have different needs and Mm -hmm. because of those needs the healthiest decision even if it hurts and even if you love each other is to split apart and find what you need so I know other people whose partners have come out who have left and it was very sad for both parties usually, but it was the right decision. But for me, the right decision was to stay. And I don't think there's ever one right decision for a whole group. You just have to look at your situation and your needs. And sometimes people grow apart and sometimes they grow together. And it's not necessarily a reflection on those people, but I feel I was very lucky that uh, my husband and I could grow together and that I was able to uh, learn how to be part of the wider queer community and learn about other parts of the queer community
0: um when those people for lack of a better word rejected the and if you know a better word please tell me rejected their partners who decided to become truer to themselves what was that were you able to see that or is that something you'd like to share because if you don't that's completely fine well
1: um i i wouldn't call it a rejection of being trans uh lots of these people who have uh, broken up with their trans partners when they come out it's not because they don't accept the trans community or accept their partner lots of them remain friends with their partner and use the correct pronouns and support them on their journeys they just you know maybe can't um, be in a relationship with a guy or a girl yes that's what i meant
0: that's what i meant not that they're rejecting the trans community but that they're rejecting. Uh, maybe I'll just leave it alone. I'm sorry. It's fine. I didn't mean it to sound like that. Some couples are healthier for
1: them to stay together, even if there's a bit of a struggle Mm -hmm. at first and it's worth giving it a shot. And you could end up Mm -hmm. very, very happy with a new dimension to your relationship. Or you could find out that, you know, as much as you love each other, that the relationship isn't giving both of you what you need and you have to find different partners. And that's not, it doesn't mean you're a bad person on either side.
0: Have you seen them be stay friends, or is it kind of like a break, and then it's done?
1: I've seen it all three ways. I've seen relationships where they stay together and are happy. I've seen relationships where they uh, go their separate ways but remain good friends. And I've seen where they break up and it's just too sad. and mm-hmm. it's it's done, and they have to lead separate lives. So you never know. but i I think that as long as you are trying to be compassionate and respectful uh, while still looking inside yourself to see what your needs are and make sure that your needs are met, that, you know, as hard as it might be, you you can't really go wrong.
0: Have you written any stories from the perspective of the partner who is dealing with their partner becoming trans? Uh,
1: Honestly, no. <laughs> I... I might like to do that someday, but I think in the past it's been just too personal. the point where I can talk about it quite comfortably and even happily, but I don't think I've written something yet. I've written trans characters into some of my stories and especially non-binary characters into some of my stories with their partners. Uh, My, my original novel, cyberpunk novel, lucky seven has a trans woman Rami. And uh, I mean, a trans woman, Cherry, and their non-binary partner, Rami, who is gender fluid and uh, is a master of disguise and presents uh, differently every day. So those two are happy and in love and they're in a relationship. Uh, And the main character of that story, Lucky Seven, uh, is a gender non-conforming lesbian named Sasha. And she also has uh, a more nuanced perspective on gender.
0: Well, from a person who is deeply curious i hope you one day maybe write about it cuz i think that would be a great perspective as well but um i think it would be cool to hear the thoughts about you coming to grips and i hope you don't think i'm presumptuous no
1: not at all with maybe someday i'll accepting... write a memoir you're not the first person who's asked
0: okay <laughs> <Phew. laughs> cuz you know you have to have the good and the bad from what i think about And sometimes when I want, when I'm angry or I'm unhappy, I'll write a story. doesn't necessarily mean I share it. And being able to place it into other characters who aren't myself would be, I think it's beneficial. Because then it also allows people who have that reticence to go, oh, these feelings are okay. And, you know, wherever they end up, whether it's acceptance or walking away from someone they love, is another facet of being able to understand that portion of the community as well, I think. But yeah, sorry.
1: No problem at all. You don't have to apologize. I think uh, that would be a nice thing to write someday. I definitely think it's a, a thing that should exist in the world.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your She-Ra and Katra series, because it's similar to Korra, but in this one, She-Ra actually has the power to create a a um, penis what was it like trying to write those characters and also because you did touch on Adora's insecurities surrounding that and you gave glimpse of their history and it sounds like they had a lot of tension that they were placed against each other but from that they were able to rebuild their trust and create a relationship of unconditional love it sounds like What was that like to write this story?
1: I love the trope Enemies to Lovers. It's one of my favorite ones. So fun. I would describe writing this uh, series as fun. It's nice because uh, Noelle Stevenson, who is the creator of uh, the She-Ra reboot, uh, did a lot of the difficult work of tearing Adora and Catra apart in the series from best friends to enemies trying to defeat each other. Uh, back to lovers so I got to come in swoop in at the end with a fan fiction and be like and this is what happened after when they had sex (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, as much as I love writing original content like my novels and stuff uh, it could be fun to write just the the most fun part at the end where all the payoff is and you didn't have to do the work
0: So you're like the person who creates the scenes behind the scenes, like under the cover scenes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And sometimes it can be fun to do that. If I was only doing that, I'd be kind of sad. But if I, you know, sometimes it's nice just to eat cake for dinner.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or pancakes, right? Breakfast for dinner. Breakfast for dinner, Pancakes and French toast. I did that once. Once.
1: You need to reevaluate your life choices.
0: What is the process you use to get into um, characters' heads who are s- possibly so divergent from yours or who are just so divergent from each other?
1: Well, if we're talking about um, fan fiction, I always go to the source material. I look at uh, what are the characters' core values? What do they care about the most in the world? And I look at what body language they use on the screen, if it's a television show, or what body language uh, the author uses if it's a book. Uh, and I look at how they talk, Um, which phrases they use, which words they use. Do they use short declarative sentences that sound authoritative or are they uh, more rambly or are they silent? Uh, Do they have any catchphrases? Uh, That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So those are the three things I look for. I look for uh, core values, body language, and uh, dialogue. And, I do a similar thing when I'm writing original fiction. I decide what are the core values of my characters? What is the most important thing in the world to them? uh, What do they love and what do they hate? And then I come up with certain body language that they might use without getting too repetitive because that's always a thing you have to look for. And usually my editor will come Mm -hmm. back and be like, you need to not have your characters be nodding all the time. (laughs) And uh, then I, I come up with how their dialogue sounds. Do they swear or do they not swear? Do they ask questions a lot or do they make short declarative statements? Or do they just love the sound of their own voice and talk in paragraphs? So it, it's, it's different for every character. But those are, the, those are the primary three things I focus on when I'm trying to portray a character as a unique individual.
0: So what it, when you write, do you need it quiet or do you like to have some background music?
1: I, I need it quiet. And I know that's not how it is for everybody. Some people are really inspired by music. Uh, mm-hmm. But I hear the words spoken in my head as though by an internal narrator. So um, to, to be able to hear my internal narration, I need it to be quiet.
0: Would you listen to any instrumental music or do you... Um... I
1: have in the past uh, sometimes to shake things up, but I, I normally just write in silence.
0: I tend to, when I write, I tend to have it... The Sometimes I'll have lyric music on really low so that it's just kind of like a background noise. And then sometimes I'll just have instrumental, depending on like maybe if I wanted to set a scene, I'll have like beating drums or I might have like tender music for myself. But... um. You, you said that you write also normal books or not normal books. What would be the right word? You publish. Original fiction. There we go.
1: <laughs> normal books. I think my <laughs> books are kind of abnormal, to be honest, <laughs> in a good way.
0: <laughs> traditional. You do traditional public, uh, you know, just original fiction. That's yes, better. Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. Let's try that again. So you also write original fiction. What? What are the differences you've noticed writing fan fiction and original fiction?
1: Well, first of all, I love how accessible fan fiction is. It's free. There's so much of it. And uh, it's a way that lots of queer people and other people from marginalized groups can connect with each other over these characters that they relate to. And I think that's really beautiful and important. So anyone that says fan fiction is not real writing doesn't know what they're talking about. That being said, uh, I think original fiction in some ways is a bit harder because you have to do the extra step of building the universe. Uh, In fan fiction, you're generally playing either in the universe that somebody else created or you're doing an alternate universe, uh, perhaps modern day, uh, but you're still following certain tropes. Uh, But if you're writing science fiction or fantasy original novels, you you really have to build your world from the ground up. And to do that in a way that makes sense, but also doesn't feel like you're just dumping unimportant info on the readers, is a skill that takes some time to develop. It, it is something that you don't see as much in fan fiction. The thing that they have in common, I think, is they're both very good at developing characters and focusing on a character's internal journey as well as their external journey, and I think that's why fan fiction resonates with so many people, and why people who write fan fiction can go on to write really, really great novels is because they they know how to focus on a character's story
0: So of all the characters that you've written for, either fiction or nonfiction uh I'm sorry either original fiction or fan fiction, which has been your favorite to develop further?
1: Oh man, <laughs> my favorite. Uh, I would have to say so far, uh, my, my favorite two characters to write have been Sasha and Elena. They're the protagonists of the novel Lucky Seven, which is a cyberpunk uh, novel that won the Golden Crown Literary Award for science fiction uh, in t- in 2019.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. It also won the Rainbow Award in that same year. So wow. uh, yeah, Lucky Seven is about a dystopian future uh, where it's kind of a capitalistic hellscape where corporations are in charge, and uh, mm-hmm. it focuses on a band of queer misfits who are pulling ocean's eleven style heists on the corporations. Uh, yeah, so it's a team. Uh, it has the found family trope. Uh, the main characters are Sasha, who's a black uh, gender nonconforming lesbian. And I uh, used a sensitivity reader, uh, multiple sensitivity readers to help create her. And I used uh, sensitivity readers for Elena as well. She is a jacker. So she can plug in to the internet with her brain, basically. Oh. So she's a hacker. It goes into virtual reality with her brain. And Sasha is the leader of the crew. So she's the handler and they enter a relationship at first. They're only working together because they have similar goals, but they don't really like each other. Okay. Um, Elena thinks that Sasha is cold because Sasha has a very distant and icy personality. And, uh, Sasha thinks Elena is headstrong and a bit reckless, uh, but eventually they, uh, fall in love. And, uh, Elena comes to see that Sasha is actually very tender-hearted and considers her crewmates on this team to be her family and will do anything, including sacrificing her life to protect them. And uh, so unraveling... The book starts from Elena's point of view. So unraveling the layers of Sasha and seeing Elena learn bits and pieces about who Sasha is until she eventually falls in love, that was a really fun experience to write.
0: So why did you do it from elena's perspective and not sasha's
1: well in the middle of the book actually this is what's special about lucky seven in the middle it switches perspectives right in the exact middle of the book it switches and you're suddenly in sasha's perspective for the second half of the book and uh i started with elena because she's the newbie on the crew she's the last one to join uh and actually has to help sasha find her scattered crew members around the world to pull this heist Uh, Because they've been split up for a little while. And um, Sasha needs Elena to help find her crewmates. Elena needs Sasha's crew to help protect her from a corporation that's trying to put a hit out on her. So they have to work together, but they don't like each other. And I started with Elena because she doesn't know all the backstory of these characters who have been a family. Uh, Okay. And so she gets to meet them one by one, like the reader does. She gets to learn their secrets one by one, like the reader does. And that's why I started with her. In the middle, Sasha finds out a big secret that her crew has been keeping from her. I won't spoil the secret, but uh, <laughs> it throws her for a loop and it changes her conception of who she, her perception of uh, not conception. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, she finds out a secret that her crew's been keeping from her and it changes her perception of who she is. And uh, she has to deal with questions about who she is and what she values and who she trusts. And so that's why I wanted to get into her point of view in the middle of the book so she can deal with all those feelings.
0: So you kind of wanted to build it from the perspective of a reader coming in as a new found family member and then give them the kind of like the rocky base of the leader who thought she understood what was going on.
1: Exactly. I wanted to start as an outsider because Elena, the character, is an outsider to this group and so is the reader. And then in the middle, I wanted to deal with Sasha's emotions when what she thought she knew is not true. So uh, then we had to be in her head to feel her confusion. So that's why why I think it works. I've had lots of readers say that they really liked the perspective shift in the middle of the book. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's typically done to have one whole half of a book from one person's perspective and the other half of the book from another person's, but... The reception I've gotten to it is very positive. I was very thoughtful actually, about
0: it. <laughs> I actually like those kind of books where you kind of come in and you're learning about people from one newbie perspective, and then it shifts into a perspective of someone who understands what's really going on. Exactly. So instead of the learning curve, you have the established curve where things become more settled and you can go, okay, well, I was this, and now I'm this. So it kind of allows you to feel like you have grown into somebody who knows more than you do. Exactly. You get it. <laughs> Sometimes. And I definitely feel like I need to read these books now because they sound unbelievably interesting.
1: Well, in some Let's ways, see. I think they're a lot like fan fiction. They are very queer. Every char- almost every character is queer in some way in uh, mm-hmm. lucky Seven and it's exciting there's lots of online battles there's like a like online sort of um, there's dragons and there's uh, castles and stuff but it's all online <laughs> it's really cool and uh, also there's lots of uh, there's some hot sex scenes in it <laughs> so if you like nice. two, two ladies going at it, then <laughs> this book is for you. Uh, I tried to represent um, lesbians, bisexual people, queer people, trans people, non-binary people. Uh, one of the characters, Rami, is the cloak. And uh, their job, they use they them pronouns, uh, Rami's job is to uh, be the master of disguise and to sneak into places they're not supposed to be. And uh, they can make themselves, through a combination of makeup and technology, uh, look like anybody they want. So they could be a uh, fat, middle-aged white guy, (laughs) or they could be um, an old lady. You don't know.
0: (laughs) So does that person become, like, the hub of things? Like... Because they get into the place where they need to be and then they kind of start to set the opera
1: about? Sometimes, yeah. They send Rami in first and they uh, uh, make it possible for everyone else to infiltrate. But uh, everyone on the crew has a role. And Rami, the non-binary cloak, they are a very loyal and sweet person and they're married to Cherry, who's the explosives expert. And she is a trans woman, Uh. a binary trans woman. So (laughs) she's also very... uh, sex-obsessed and crude and loves explosions. So she's one of my favorite characters to write, too.
0: <laughs> so you have this soft character with this crude character and that just forms this perfect little union. Yes! Oh, very evil genius of you. This is kind of a more personal slant. Because the pandemic is raging and we're still in the midst of it, what is kind of your self-care routine? Like, what do you do to maintain your either your level-headedness or get back to it or... Just take care of yourself, basically. That's a
1: really great question. I'm glad you asked that. Well, I think one of the most important things that I do to take care of myself is to make sure that I'm taking my medications when I'm supposed to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you stop doing that, if you forget, or if you stop taking your medication, everything else becomes that much harder. And things are already hard. (laughs) we don't need to make them harder by not taking medication so setting whatever reminders I need to set uh, asking my spouse to remind me to take my medication so the other uh, thing that I do is make sure that my body has enough energy so to do that I need to check and see whether I need to eat Uh, I need to check and see whether I've had enough water just checking in with what my body needs do I need sleep do I need to be alone or do I need to call a friend? So just taking a few moments to look inward and see what my body uh, needs in that moment to feel comfortable.
0: Do you do any like exercise or do you do any body movements that allow you to also reconnect with your body?
1: Uh, I wish I did more exercise. I walk my dog. (laughs) That's a good way to (laughs) uh, center my mind and force myself to take a break from working.
0: Can you get into, are you someone who would easily obsess over just keep going, just keep going, just keep going? So you build in um, mechanisms that allow you to stop? Yes. Or force you to stop, I guess?
1: Yes. I have an app on my computer called Cold Turkey. And what it does, uh, what Cold Turkey does is it blocks the internet for a set period of time, like 15 minutes or 20 minutes. I write for that amount of time and then at the end of the cold turkey block my internet comes back and i when that happens i can check in and see do i need water do i need to walk the dog do i need to use the bathroom or have i forgotten do i need to take my medications you know whatever i need to do so
0: that sounds like a good app is it only for like specific like is it only for desktops or pcs or I think it, it works on phones well? too
1: i know it does both pc really? and mac so okay uh, but i think it works on phones cool. as well Uh, It's a great app. I recommend it. But Cold Turkey is really good if you need your computer to do something like writing or editing and you don't want the distraction of the internet. You don't want to get Mm -hmm. pulled into uh, Twitter or archive of our own to read someone else's work. Uh, It'll shut off the whole internet if you want. You can customize. You can also block specific sites. Like You could just block Twitter if you want.
0: Oh, That's good because like when I help someone edit, we work actually in Google Docs. You can Docs. also block and the whole so...
1: internet except for one website if you need that website to work. So actually, one of the really? settings I have is that it lets me work on Google Docs, but no other websites work.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds really good. And is it like a website? You like get it from a website? Yeah, or... you get it from
1: their website and download it onto your computer. It's an application. It's very, okay. very useful. I highly recommend it. And is there a
0: cost for it? There's a free, free...
1: version. Uh, that ha- that doesn't have all the features, and then there's a thirty dollar for forever version, which I found the cost. Oh, was that's not it. so bad. One time payment of thirty dollars for forever to use the app and all its features.
0: Yeah, I like the paid version sometimes for certain things that infiltrate too much of my system. I like that not I a feel a like it's probably safer. Uh, yeah, if it
1: was a subscription cost, I wouldn't be using it to be honest. But it's since it's a one time payment for the whole program, I am okay with paying thirty dollars because I use it all the time. <laughs>
0: Okay. No, I like that. All right. We're in 2021. 2020 was basically a dumpster, dumpster uh, fire. What are your hopes for this year?
1: Well, first of all, I hope that people start following guidelines about the pandemic and such. I hope that uh, the American <laughs> government gets itself in some semblance of order to help marginalized communities communities struggling, but on a more personal level. For me personally, my goals are to publish Lucky 8, which should be coming out in a couple months. I'm excited about that. Nice. Uh, And I have another novel called Song of Stars that is a fantasy novel. Nice to be getting back to fantasy after writing cyberpunk for a couple years. (laughs) Uh, It's about uh, friends to enemies to lovers. Uh, Two childhood friends grow up uh, under the same mentor. And uh, she kind of pits them against each other. And they have to navigate being friends and being in love with each other while also being competitors searching for the approval of this mentor. So, um, and also one of them has a magic
0: voice that can heal people who are sick. So. Wow. That sounds really yeah. cool. Do you mind kind of walking us through what it's like? Cause you did talk about um, sensitivity readers yeah. and how you utilize them, but like take us from step one to step public. Well,
1: Step one is the outline. Uh, I know Mm -hmm. authors vary in how detailed their outline is. I will say my outlines have become more detailed over the years as I get better and write better and better books. So make of that what you will. (laughs) So the first (laughs) thing I do is I write an outline. They're usually very character-focused outlines that show the character's journey and how they change and what's important to them. And also have major events that take place in the book like any uh, action scenes or battles or, you know, executions, exciting things like that. Mm -hmm. Then I write the first draft. Uh, It's very fun to write the first draft. Uh, Also a little scary because you know you're going to have to change a lot of things before the end. The important thing about Mm -hmm. the first draft is just to get it done. Uh, You can't edit what isn't on the page. So if you feel uncertain about a scene, uh, that's okay. First draft is the time. To just do your best and then move on, so keep moving forward. And then you send it. Then you go to editing mode. You don't you don't uh, send it off yet. After you first draft, you have to go through it at least once uh, and try to look for any plot holes or structural integrity issues. Like, did I? Uh, does it make sense for the character to show up right at this moment? Does she really know the secret of uh, her sister? You know. Just making sure all the little plot uh, threads come together. Mm -hmm. And then after you go over it for the first edit, you send it to your editor. And uh, I have an editor because I'm part of a publishing house. So I just send it directly to the editor. Uh, And then they will look for generally structural issues first. The same thing that I was looking for. Uh, so mostly they're looking for things to make sense for the world to feel real for the character motivations to be consistent. And then I get it back Okay. and there's a bunch of comments on it and I resolve all of the comments and then I send it back. Then if there's no remaining structural issues, the editor will then start editing for style. That means making sure each sentence is as pretty as possible and there's no uh, repetitive words, no awkward phrases, uh, all the dialogue is crisp and to the point. So style. And then I get it back and I go through it again. (laughs) And once all those comments are resolved, I send it back to the editor for a final run through. And after that, then it goes to sensitivity readers. Uh, Those sensitivity readers are people who are from a marginalized group, that the writer is not a part of and they will look for any things like unintentionally racist things I might've put in despite my best efforts because you know, white Mm -hmm. people are taught racism from the moment we're born. uh, And then we have to unlearn it and it's hard and it's a lifelong effort. So we all have to work on ourselves, everybody. back to editing the sensitivity readers and they don't have to be just for um, different races or ethnicities. They can also be, you know, I have been a sensitivity reader for people who are not bisexual or lesbian women uh, writing about a queer woman character. So, and, you know, I'm also autistic, so uh, I could sensitivity read. Uh, I haven't done that recently, but I could sensitivity read someone who's writing an autistic character potentially. Um, And then,
0: That's so funny because I actually have low-spectrum autism (laughs) as well. Yay! It's a nice commonality.
1: But uh, after that, after sensitivity readers, the author then has to go back and resolve uh, all the issues they pointed out. Then it goes to the proofreader. They're basically just looking for typos or punctuation issues. So they're not changing any of the content. They're just making sure there's no misspellings. The commas are in the right place. The book is formatted correctly for e-readers. And then it gets published once it's formatted with the cover put on and all the, you know, notes at the end about the author and links to their other work and all that other stuff. So basically you write the first draft, edit it yourself, send it to your editor, get it back, send it to your editor, get it back, send it to your editor, get it back as many times as it takes. Then sensitivity readers, then proofreaders, then it's published.
0: So do the sensitivity readers and the proofreaders send it back to you, or do they just fix the mistakes? They
1: uh, usually do it as suggestions, and then I approve the okay. suggestions. Some of them are bigger comments like, where are they? You didn't describe the setting. In that case, it's a comment and not just a fix. If it's a typo, like if I made a made a made just an error in spelling, they'll just fix it, and it's no big deal.
0: Okay, I see. So how do you find sensitivity readers on your own or is that something just through a publishing house?
1: Well, some publishing
0: houses provide them,
1: which is great. I'm with a smaller publishing house, so I find my own uh, and make sure that they get paid because it's important to pay people for their expertise. If you uh, do -hmm. not have money and you're trying to self-publish something uh, and you need to pay them, then consider offering in trade. If you have skills that you could give to them in exchange for them looking at your work, That is always a good idea if you're very, very broke, like many of us are. But the point is that you have to acknowledge that they're giving you their labor and you have to be respectful Mm -hmm. and you have to uh, assign that labor a value. But to find them, I usually. So that's something you guys can
0: agree on. Like it might not be. You might have something they don't know you have. And so you go, oh, hey, do you mind being my sensitivity reader? What is something you would like? And then if you can't agree to it, then you just don't yeah. work together.
1: I I mean, I pay mine, but I know that some people are, I, I mean, we're all broke in this uh, broken country, but I'm a little <laughs> less broke than some poor queer people, so mm-hmm. Uh, I am able to throw some money at these people, especially because like my publishing house finances me. Yeah. That's nice. They're a small publishing house, but they care. It's important to uh, offer something to show that you value their work and you, you consider it a job and that their expertise is worthy Mm -hmm. of payment of some kind. Money is always best, but if you are a very young broke author, just starting out, you can offer to edit their work in exchange for them editing yours.
0: And so, how much does a sensitivity reader normally get if you don't? Mind oh, it depends.
1: That? It can be anywhere from like, hey, just throw me forty bucks, or some of them offer to do it for free, and some of them can cost like six hundred dollars or more. Uh, it just it really depends. Wow.
0: So, like, how mu- How many different communities they can help you? Sensitivity. Yeah, it also read depends for.
1: on what other work they've done in the past, uh, how much editing experience they have, and what they ask for.
0: I see. Okay. It's labor and experience
1: yeah, based, definitely. Okay.
0: And do you have any last words before we go?
1: Absolutely. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you for talking to me. And uh, this was Thank great. You for being I on. hope that people enjoy the podcast. Uh, I guess if I want to have any last words, it's that the world needs more queer stories of all kinds. So never feel like someone has already told your story. People don't just read one book they don't just read one fan fiction so even if something has already been written that's a little bit like what you're dreaming about writing the world still needs your book (laughs) people always need more stories about queer people to relate to to have adventures with so you should write it you should write it
0: all right my lovely fan beans that's today's show. Check out and follow Ray on her website, radymagden.com, on Tumblr, Twitter, and AO3 as RadiMagden. After you do that, follow and connect with me on Tumblr, Twitter, and TikTok as Down the Phantom Hole with Aya, on AO3 as Ayaka Spencer, and on Instagram as The Podcat. Until next time, thank you for listening.